You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Welcome back to this third half hour of Real Presence Live this morning with Jack and Dreen Canelli as your hosts. And we have with us a person who is no stranger to Real Presence Live, Steve Weidenkopf, uh, an instructor at Christendom College. And Steve, you can probably uh, give a little little bit more fuller uh, introduction of yourself. But before we do that, Doreen's got another one of her jokes lined up. These these are more riddles than jokes. Kind of, yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Good morning, Steve. And feel feel free to answer if you can. What do snowmen call their offspring? This is kind of an easy one. Oh, snowballs? No. Yeah. Snow kids? I don't know. Yeah. Chill drin. Oh. <laughs> Chill. Oh, there you go. Yep. And <laughs> my sides are my sides are aching. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right, Steve. Let's just get into where you're you're talking to us today about Saint Thomas Becket, and I guess it's his feast day tomorrow. And so I guess uh, you know, it's it's certainly timely, uh, but uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing you tell us about you know uh, you know who he was, what his significance is to the church and to us, and uh, you know what he accomplished during his lifetime. So why don't you give us a, a little fuller explanation of your uh, our, uh, introduction to yourself and uh, mm-hmm. Thomas. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks for having me back on the show, Jack and Doreen. Always glad to, to talk with you. And um, I guess I don't—I forgot now how often I have been on the show, but it's been multiple times now, and so I'm always happy to to come on and, and talk with you all about church history. So, as you mentioned, I'm an adjunct professor of uh, church history at Christendom College Graduate School, uh, now in Front Royal, Virginia. Our grad campus used to be in Alexandria, but we moved out to Front Royal this past summer to co-locate with the undergrad campus there. Um, and I teach courses on church history and the Crusades. Uh, I've written multiple books on both subjects as well over the last number of years, and i um, just always happy to, to talk about uh, and to bring the, the vibrant and rich history of our church to, to more and more Catholics and have a greater understanding of who the people were who came before us, our, the, the men and women of our, of our faith and our brothers and sisters in the faith who've come before us. We can learn a lot from them by uh, learning who they were and how they lived and, and what they did. And so uh, today we would like to, we're going to talk about St. Thomas Beckett, a man who uh, at least is somewhat known, uh, at least his, his name is usually fairly well known, but I think he's somewhat overlooked, actually, uh, in the Church's life and history, especially liturgically, because his feast falls um, usually, you know, always in the octave of Christmas, so we're always focused on celebrating, obviously, correctly, rightly so, the birth of Christ and his nativity and focused on that liturgical tradition and, and of maintaining and keeping the Christmas uh, season going uh, and that celebration. But So his, his memorial is an optional memorial, and is always not, not always celebrated, but it is tomorrow. And it's, it commemorates his martyrdom here on December 29th of 1170. He was a man who lived in the 12th century. He was uh, a Norman, uh, so a man whose ethnicity is really, uh, you know, Normandy from France, but he lived in England, specifically London, during the 12th century, and uh, throughout his life was known as Thomas of London uh, instead of Thomas Beckett. He didn't really use that family name, Beckett, that he's known by today. Uh, and then when he became Archbishop of Canterbury later on, he became known as Thomas of 
Canterbury. And it's only later in history that he's really recognized and seen as Thomas Beckett. Uh, and even that name, Beckett, his last name there, was many different uh, theories of the origin of it. Um, one theory posits that uh, it was uh, the, the name or the diminutive version of the name Beck was an old French word which meant uh, beaky for like a nose, like your nose was small and beaky, like a bird. Um, and so it was It was actually used as by his enemies during his lifetime, that, that term Beck, um, to him to, to criticize his facial features and to uh, as, as a form of, of insult, really. So he didn't like to be called Thomas Beckett uh, during his life. Again, per, uh, perform, you know, he definitely preferred uh, Thomas of London or Thomas of, of uh, Kindergarten. So Thomas grew up in a very Catholic family. Um, a mother, mother Matilda had great devotion to the Blessed Mother. She was very pious, very charitable, and she instilled in her four children, Thomas and his three sisters, a, um, a the, the virtue of charity, the, the desire to be charitable to others, especially those less less fortunate than than yourself. Uh, and that was something that he maintained throughout his life, this, this sense of charity. His father was the sheriff of London growing up, so he came from a fairly well-to-do family. He wasn't uh, poor by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, recognized early as a very bright young man and was then sent off to be educated. And through the course of his education, he came to the knowledge of and the awareness of the then Archbishop of Canterbury, a man by the name of Theobald. And so Theobald brought Thomas into his, um, into his circle, if you will, and made him a clerk, so someone who would write correspondence for the Archbishop and would do other administrative type of tasks. And eventually Thomas was ordained a deacon in 1154, as most clerks uh, at that time of any uh, you know, archbishop or bishop would be ordained, at least as the diaconate. Um, and it's there, while he was under the service of Archbishop Theobald of Canterbury, that he then comes into contact with the new king of England at the time, in 1154, Henry II, the Plantagenet King of England. And Henry was uh, younger than Thomas, about a decade younger than Thomas, but... Um, they began to, to be associated with one another, and then it was Archbishop Theobald who actually recommended Thomas to Henry to fill the position of royal chancellor of England. And that position actually had both a spiritual and secular duties to it, if you will. Spiritually, the royal chancellor was the royal chaplain, so the actual chaplain to the king, so one who would you know, help uh, pray with the king and, and ensure the king's sacramental needs were met and whatnot. And then his secular duties was the royal chancellor was the keeper of the royal seal, so the king's seal, which meant that any official royal documents were always seen by the royal chancellor. He was the one who affixed the king's seal to these documents and whatnot. So that is a very close position, like the king's right-hand man, if you will. And so the two of them, uh, Thomas and, and Henry, over the years then, while he performed that duty of royal chancellor, became very, very close friends, despite their difference in age. Um, and, and they lived a very extravagant lifestyle. So even though uh, Thomas during this time was a cleric, he was a deacon, he lived very extravagantly, had fine clothes, had a small, actually fairly decent-sized retinue of knights that he kept uh, around his, his um, household that he had paid for and for protection and other things. It's actually said that, that Thomas had a small zoo, if you will. He collected various kinds of animals and, and had them uh, in his household as a small little zoo. Uh, that kept him entertained, uh, and he frequently played chess with the king and others and was very, very good at that. 
um, down despite his extravagant lifestyle and all of his secular and spiritual duties as world chancellor, he still maintained his faith. He still continued to pray and perform various penitential acts, uh, still lived a chaste life, uh, and then was also very much focused on charity, that, that virtue that his mother had so instilled in him uh, as well. Now, things really begin to change in Thomas and Henry's life when Archbishop Theobald dies in April of 1161. Uh, and it's when that happens that Henry the king proposed to the Pope that Thomas become Archbishop of Canterbury. And the Pope agreed. So Thomas is then, he's only deacon still at this time, so he's ordained a priest first, and then after his ordination of priesthood, he then ordained an, uh, a bishop and consecrated as Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, the king wanted Thomas to be Archbishop of Canterbury because that was the, and still is, the primatial see, if you will, for the Church in England. That is, That was the original diocese when um, um, Augustine of Canterbury, back in the 6th century, sent by Pope St. Gregory the Great, came to England. Um, that was the first diocese and the first center of, of really the Church in England. And so that is a very important post. Uh, ecclesial post. It's a very um, uh, post that is that is very much linked with the crown, and so the king wants somebody in that position who is very much in lockstep with the king. Uh, and so he thought Thomas was that individual, and so he wanted Thomas uh, in that position. So the pope acquiesced, and Thomas is then um, becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, when Thomas is Archbishop, he has a, a real change kind of overcomes him, if you will. He becomes much more focused on his spiritual life. It's almost as if the the, the weight of the Episcopal duties uh, and the care of souls that he was now responsible for really kind of came to his, his forefront and really something that he focused on intensely. So he intensified also his penitential practices as well as his prayer life um, and, and focused more on his spiritual duties than on secular duties. Now, initially, he was still the royal chancellor while he was Archbishop of Canterbury, but several months into his, his reign as Archbishop, he realized that he couldn't do both well, uh, and so he chose to resign the office of royal chancellor, which greatly angered uh, King Henry. He wanted him to continue to do both, because, again, he, this was now Thomas occupied two very important positions within England, um, and was, Henry believed, you know, his, his best buddy, and it would do basically whatever Henry wanted him to do. Now, there, a conflict erupts then a few years into Thomas's reign as Archbishop between Thomas and Henry, and this conflict has to do with, um, in essence, to kind of to not make this overly complicated, but in essence it has to deal with, with uh, the legal jurisdiction associated with clergy who commit, who commit secular crimes. So um, I think that, you know, this. so in essence what happens is there were in medieval times, right, and even today, although it's a little bit less, we have two, you had two different court systems. You had the church court system, the ecclesial courts, and then you had secular courts as well. And so there were different crimes, right? There were church crimes, there were secular crimes, and so each court system had its own jurisdiction. And a cleric or a clergyman, who committed a secular crime was always tried though in the church court, and that was something the king didn't like. Okay, I think uh, I'm going to interrupt here uh, for just a second, Steve, because we've got a break coming up. So I want let's hold that uh, hold the thought, and we will come back and we will kind of continue this discussion about this uh, dis, uh, the conflict between Henry II and Thomas Becket, 
And you're listening to Real Presence Live, and we're talking with Steve Weidenkopf from Christendom College. And stay tuned for more on the other side of the break with Real Presence Live. Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network. God's blessings to all of you. My name is Father Chad Wilhelm, and I'm a priest of the Diocese of Fargo. And this year, I celebrate 25 years of being a priest. And the joy, the great things that I love about the priesthood is the deep relationship that Jesus and I have as speaking heart to heart. He knows the depths of my heart, and he speaks to all of us in the depths of our heart. That's what I enjoy about being a priest, that I get to speak about Jesus, not just on Sundays, but every day of my life, and that I've given my life to Jesus and the church. What a wonderful grace and a gift that has been for me for 25 years, and to serve the good people of the Diocese of Fargo, but just to serve the church as a whole. May God continue to bless all of you as you listen to Real Presence Radio. During this year-end season of giving, Real Presence Radio wishes to extend a heartfelt thanks to all that have extended support this past year, including those that have contributed to the Real Presence Radio Permanent Endowment Fund. These funds remain permanent while the annual earnings are used to support operations. To learn more about an endowment gift, a gift which will last in perpetuity, please call me, Mike Kidrowski, Director of Advancement at 701-290-4503. Together, we are making a difference. Hi, this is Dr. Ryan Sapo from Lumen Vision in Fargo. In addition to eye exams for children and adults, Lumen Vision provides custom contact lens services for patients with keratoconus, severe dry eyes, and hard-to-fit prescriptions. These specialty contact lenses can be made for single vision, astigmatism, and multifocal prescriptions. For more information about Lumen Vision's contact lens services, our website is www.lumen.vision. You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Real Presence Live. We're talking with Steve Weidenkopf about St. Thomas Beckett and his significance to the church. And uh, when we left for the break, we were kind of in the middle of his conflict with uh, King Henry II. So... Steve, why don't you just kind of take it up from where we left off? Excellent. Yeah, so as we mentioned before the break, Thomas and, and Henry, for the first few years, their their relationship was, was fine as, as king and, and archbishop. But then a few years in, there's a great conflict that erupts, and it, it has to deal with how clergy um, were treated in the legal system in England at the time. So a clergyman who committed a secular crime, so let's say, sadly, if a cleric actually murdered somebody, um, that cleric would not be, that murder is a secular crime, but that cleric would not be tried in the royal court or king's court because he was a cleric, he was a clergy member. So the clergyman was tried in the church courts. Uh, and so church courts uh, during this age of time were more lenient and more merciful than secular courts. And so the king and others began to get to be upset with a perceived injustice that clerics who did horrible things, 
were receiving more lenient sentences in the church courts, and then they weren't susceptible to royal punishment uh, in royal courts for the secular crimes that they may have committed. So Henry really took this this um, this, this issue uh, and used it as a pretense, really, um, for a greater desire that he had, which was to control the church within England himself, right? To really make the church subservient to the king. Uh, that was his, one of his ideas for why he uh, nominated uh, Beckett uh, to to the position of Archbishop of Canterbury to the Pope, because he thought that Beckett, Beckett would just do his beck and call and, and do whatever he wanted, and the Church would then be in lockstep with the King, and that wasn't the case uh, with Thomas, and, and now Henry thought he had another way in which to, to kind of secure control over the Church, and he thought he had, you know, his right-hand man and Thomas as Archbishop, and so Thomas would agree with him, and allow the, the these clerics accused of secular crimes to be tried now in royal courts. Um, and Thomas said no. Thomas refused to do that. And that greatly um, surprised Henry and also greatly angered Henry as well. So in, in the new year, in January of 1164, Henry decides to call a, a meeting of all of the bishops uh, and the, the major noblemen of England together in one specific place, his hunting lodge known uh, in Clarington, and invites them all together. And there, at that this meeting in January of 1164, he produces a document which comes to be known as the Constitutions of Clarendon, where he articulates in 16 articles um, that he basically how he wants to control the Church uh, in England. Uh, and so I'm not going to go through all the different articles, but one of them was obviously clerics accused of a secular crime now have to be um, uh, under, they have to undergo trial in a secular court so they can receive royal punishment. And there were other ways in which he tried to control the Church through these different constitutions. Um, and he demanded at this meeting that Beckett and all the bishops of England agree and sign these articles. In, in essence, if you did, or, or to do so, was, in essence, was to hand over, basically, the Church's independence to the King, to make the Church subservient to the King of England. Beckett refused to sign the Constitution, um, and the other bishops of England sided with him as a result of that, right? The Archbishop of Canterbury really is kind of the lead bishop, if you will, um, of all the bishops in England, at least the, the one who is the de facto leader, right, of, of the Episcopacy in England. So um, the bishops refused. Henry is angry. He's angry at Thomas, who he thought was his friend, who he thought was going to do whatever he wanted him to do. Um, he's angry at the bishops. You know, he wants to be in full control of everything in his kingdom. Um, I should take a brief detour here and mention that, you know, people might be thinking, well, why why didn't why does Henry want to control everything? He's the king. Doesn't he control everything already? So this is the uh, 12th century, mid-12th century. This is before the age of absolutist kings. So medieval kings were basically the kind of, you know, lord, the high lord among other lords, right? They were not the absolutist kings that we think of that come much later into European history that control everything within their countries, right? Medieval kings did not do that. They were very powerful. Uh, they were able to influence other barons and nobles greatly. They were very wealthy. Uh, but they really were kind of an overlord of other lords. They were not absolutist. They did not control everything in their own countries at this time at all. Um, and so Henry here is really doing something that is unique, uh, and something that is, is uh, he was hopeful that would increase his power and prestige in England, um, but something that he didn't have control over in, in the beginning, obviously. So later in the year of 1164, 
um, Henry is so angry at Beckett that he brings up false charges uh, against Beckett, uh, basically accusing him of financial mismanagement when he was the royal chancellor. These are completely false charges. But Beckett sees the writing on the wall, if you will, that the king is out to get him. The king is now going to persecute him and trying is going to persecute the church in England. So Beckett decides that he has to leave. So he flees England uh, and goes to France, where he meets with Pope Alexander III, who is traveling through France at the time, uh, discusses the whole situation. And ultimately, uh, Beckett has to stay in France for the next six years, because it's, it's just not safe for him to go back to England. Uh, meanwhile, the king continues to try to control the church in England through various ways, but really is not getting anywhere because the the bishops are looking towards um, Thomas and looking to what he's going to do. And since he's not in England, there's kind of a stalemate, if you will, uh, that goes on over these, these six years. Eventually, though, between the actions of King Henry II, of Beckett, and of Pope Alexander III at the time, um, over the six years to try to resolve the situation, Beckett finally decides that it's time for him to go back to England. And so in December of 1170, he does. He returns. He goes back to, to England. Henry at the time is actually not in England. He's in Normandy. He's campaigning in France, um, trying to, to secure and, and acquire additional territory. And while he is, the king is campaigning in Normandy, this whole issue of the news of Beckett returning to England is, is brought to him. And he is, is, he's angry, he's upset at the situation, he wants Beckett to just do what he says. Uh, and in while he's talking with his knights and his barons in England, uh, he bemoans the situation and he orders the arrest of Beckett. Um, he, you know, the infamous phrase is that he uh, said something to the kin of, well, no one rid me of this meddlesome or, or low-born priest. He probably never actually said those words, but it makes for great drama. Anyway, um, and so, but he did order the arrest of Beckett. And so four knights uh, leave Normandy. They leave Normandy, travel back to, to England, uh, and confront Beckett. Now, they were supposed to arrest Beckett, uh, but they meet him in the cathedral. And in a very dramatic scene, uh, they ask him a series of questions. Uh, you know, they, they say they have come to kill him. Beckett accepts his martyrdom, uh, demands that they only hurt him and kill him and no one else in the cathedral, uh, and then offers his, his, his soul to Christ uh, in defense of the Church, in defense of, of the Church in England, and they strike him down. It's said that one night struck him so, struck him, struck Beckett so forcefully that um, he actually sliced the top of his, his skull off, oh. and as he did so, his sword... Uh, with so much force and power that his sword then uh, went into the stone, went to the ground. So he swung it, it so hard, uh, and then on the follow-through, the sword hit the ground, or hit the stone in the cathedral, and it actually shattered in two. That's how forcefully he struck uh, the archbishop. And obviously Thomas died uh, at the cathedral. And so on December 29th, 1170, Thomas Beckett was martyred in his for defense of the Church and for maintaining the independency of the Church in England. Now, when news of, mar of his martyrdom, of his, of his murder, came back to the king, in, uh, in, who was still in France, uh, it said that Henry was, was beside himself, that he burst into tears, he tore his clothing, he put on penitential sackcloth, he was just, he locked himself in a room, refused to eat, and didn't receive any visitors, and was completely 
um, beside himself as this had happened. Because remember, he didn't order this. He didn't want that to happen. He was angry with Thomas, but he never ordered or wanted the death of his friend. But these knights took it upon themselves to, to do it, to do the deed for the king, even though he didn't want it. Um, there was great reaction to to, Penn, to um, Beckett's death. Beckett was seen, was very beloved by the people of England throughout this whole conflict. Um, and upon his death, his uh, tomb, his shrine in, in, uh, at, at Canterbury became a great pilgrimage place. In fact, it was one of the third, mo- it was the third most popular pilgrimage destination in, in, in the Middle Ages, outside of Rome and Santiago de Compostela. Um, so it was a high-trafficked area. There were many reported miracles from his tomb, um, and it was very well visited uh, until, and a place in pilgrimage, until the 16th century, when another king, Henry, Henry VIII, actually in um, November of 1538, declared Thomas Becket to be a traitor to England and ordered the destruction of the shrine of Thomas, um, had ordered his bones removed from his tomb and burned. And, and so it's King Henry VIII who... Um, who, who was successful in uh, breaking away from the Catholic Church and establishing complete royal control of the Church in England, uh, who then was the one who destroyed this, this you know, beautiful martyr's tomb and shrine and place of pilgrimage. Uh, so if you go to Canterbury today, you can't see his bones or shrine. There's a little, I think there's a little plaque or a little marker that, that shows the spot where Thomas was, was actually struck down in the cathedral. But outside of that, there's really nothing. Uh, left of, uh, to commemorate this this wonderful and beautiful saint. Did Henry the uh, Second punish the knight that killed him? Oh, good question. Yeah, actually, no, he he didn't. Um, but the knights, he was angry with them, obviously. But the um, they actually, of their own accord, um, soon after the event, they were really kind of struck in with grief for what they had done, especially noticing and seeing the king's reaction to what they had done. Uh, and so they actually, although four of them went to Rome. And had an audience, had an audience with the Pope, and requested um, asked forgiveness, went to confession, asked forgiveness from the Pope, received absolution. But as their penance, they were required to go to the Holy Land and to offer their services in defense of Christian pilgrims uh, during in, in the Holy Land, and they did. And so they all went to the Holy Land. And by 1182 or so, so within a decade of Becket's martyrdom, we don't have any further evidence of, of their existence. So they more than likely died in the Holy Land protecting pilgrims. Uh, oh. during the crusading period. Okay. okay, well, that's that's an interesting story. I, uh, But we're coming up on a hard break. I'm sorry we don't have any uh, more chance to, uh, you know, kind of pursue this even a little bit further down the road. But, uh, Steve, we certainly want to thank you once again. And I think this has been your fifth time, if not your sixth, that you've been on with us. And I hope we can have you on again because it's always fun to have you and it's always very interesting and educational. And it's good to hear, you know, the real history of the church. And with that, we'll go to the hard break and stay tuned for more Real Presence Live on the other side. We're going to talk about the North Dakota March for Life. Live, engaging, and local, this is Real Presence Live, where we bring you positive and uplifting stories and share the great things happening in our local area on the Real Presence Radio Network. 